Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll gain some insight into the addiction to Imodium from a former addict herself. There was a lot of discussion about loperamide, and a lot of people were using it to uh, ameliorate the symptoms of withdrawal. Plus, the fear of clowns and other phobias. Most phobias, you know, like like clown phobia, uh, uh, usually develop uh, in, in childhood or early adolescence. And how to healthfully navigate the world of fast food. I think an easy thing is always to look for is calories. How can I get the most nutritional benefit with probably the least amount of calories? Um, so calories is one thing. We'll get our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, with the new creepy clown scare so rampant, we explore the origins of clown phobia and how to face other fears. Plus, the best way to healthfully navigate the world of fast food. But first, What's behind the addiction to the over-the-counter drug Imodium? The epidemic of opioid addiction sweeping the country has led to another form of drug abuse. Addicts who cannot get the painkillers they crave are instead turning to Imodium and other anti-diarrhea medications. Here with one such story and its hopeful outcome are Gina Marafa. She's a clinical toxicologist with the Upstate New York Poison Center and Kate Rayland, who had become addicted to these substances. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Well, thank thank you. you for having us. Gina, let me start with you. Let's begin by explaining what is loperamide, also known as Imodium. And what is it generally used for? Sure. So loperamide, or a common brand name, is Imodium, although it's available in many different over-the-counter preparations. Most commonly is for an anti-diarrheal. Most people have probably taken a loperamide-containing product at some point in their life. Um, again, it's an over-the-counter safe product when used at the doses that are um, prescribed that are um, dictated on the back of the containers and it's most commonly used um, for anti-diarrhea for various different purposes so basically what do we need to know about it though in terms of its pharmacologic makeup i mean how does it work because i think most people wouldn't know that it has some opioid Qualities. Right. It is actually an opioid. And if you look at it structurally, um, it is an opioid. But the the reason that most people don't appreciate that is because when you take it at the doses that are recommended, it only has effects in our gastrointestinal tract. So you don't have the same effects in the brain and in other places for a several different reasons. The main re one of the main reasons is that most people don't think of it as an opioid is it doesn't get into our brain. So our brain has a protective mechanism, if you will, that it if when loperamide gets there, it essentially kicks it out. So it has the effects on the gastrointestinal tract very similar to other opioids. For example, constipation. That's why it's used as an anti-diarrheal. Um, but it's structurally it is an opioid. So why do people abuse it? I mean, 
and how much would you have to take? Give us a sample of what a normal dose would be for for diarrhea, and then what how how much would someone have to take to abuse it, so to speak? And so, what and what what what's the effect of the abuse? Right. So um, the normal dose, if you take it for its anti-diarrheal effects, depending if you're depending on your age, is right. you know two to four milligrams, sometimes up to eight milligrams, a couple of times a day. So small doses. So when you think about it, one or two pills when you buy an over-the-counter preparation, right? That you can repeat depending on your symptoms, but you know, certainly not more than six or eight pills per day. Um, and th those are the, the ther recommended therapeutic dose. Obviously, it changes depending on age and, and size, but that's about the range. Um, what we've been seeing um, on an increasing level, probably since 2011, 2012, is that people are taking exceedingly higher doses. Like what? Like hundreds of tablets of these um, to essentially overcome that what I mentioned earlier that protective mechanism of in our brain that kicks it out of our brain to overwhelm that and then you get the effects of the opioid effects and what we've seen is that people are abusing this really for two reasons one is if they're having withdrawal symptoms from from a narcotic or an opioid they take loperamide at high doses to help those symptoms and also they are also taking loperamide as an alternative. So as we know, people abuse and are addicted to hydrocodone and oxycodone and heroin, all of which work the same way. They're all opioids. They're all opioids. They all work the same way. And very high doses of loperamide, people have been abusing that for the same effects as those other opioids that people are, are well known So people do about. get high using it. Yes. Can get high using it. Yes. And is it, I mean, when you talk, I read somewhere something up to 300 pills a day, some people? There's the dose range of what people are taking is exceeding, it's variable from person to person course, because it also depends on tolerance as well. So, but it's exceedingly high doses. You know, it could be on upwards of a couple of hundred pills. Um, and, and really what we're seeing is there's overdoses um, and what we're now learning about this is that it causes severe heart effects and car cardiac arrest um, and also is, is now being reported as, is a cause of death in many patients. So, wow, very, very concerning. So it's, in that sense, not unlike overdosing on other types of opioids and or heroin. Am I correct? Well, yes. Um, so it... Certainly, opioids and heroin are very dangerous. They usually, when they cause people to get very sick and to die, that's usually they slow their breathing down and then they stop breathing. Um, loperamide is somewhat unique in that it can do that, but the other dangerous thing about loperamide and what we're seeing increasingly commonly is the heart effects. Um, and that's, there's only a few opioids that are directly toxic to the heart and loperamide is one of them wow. so it's a little bit different I mean the end result is sadly the same where people are dying um, but it is a little bit different than when you think about classic heroin overdose but the point is that is, there's also the danger I mean another point is that is also a danger of addiction absolutely so that is that that you then begin to crave it let's say for argument's sake you were not addicted to a prior opioid 
so that you're not using it as you so well described as a bridge mm-hmm. to help you through perhaps a withdrawal. Let's say you just started, you were a teenager Mm-hmm. and you just started to try this and use mm-hmm. more and more, mm-hmm. what would that addiction or that addictive pattern look like? It's the same as any type of opioid addiction or other addiction. So certainly we know people can become addicted. They can become tolerant to this. And Does and that's why, and that's exactly right, right? So then they increase their doses for various reasons, and then their end result you know, at some point they wind up in, in an emergency department and very well could be having significant cardiac toxicity. And you've seen a very high increase of late in the last just maybe since 2011. I, I, I saw somewhere that there's, or between 2010 and 2011, there was a tenfold increase. Yes. Yeah. So we've seen a significant increase both locally at the upstate New York Poison Center, and we cover 54 counties. So we're seeing that locally. Um, and it's also on a national trend increasing. So um, it's probably the last four to five years and probably even a higher amount in the last, you know, one to two years after that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with clinical toxicologist Gina Marafa and ex-loperamide addict Kate Rayland. And we're talking about the abuse of Imodium. And Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us you had been addicted at one point to Imodium correct? Oh, yes. So um, tell us your story. What what happened? Well, it actually started with a Vicodin addiction that, like a lot of people that are addicted to prescription opioids, uh, started with a legitimate injury um, and continued over time to the point where I became both physically and mentally addicted to the drug. And when the medication ran out, the treatments worked, the pain went away, there was no... Uh, tapering down from the drug I was just cut off so I was left to detox on my own and I looked on the internet on the internet like most people that are facing such a problem uh, a recent statistic that just came out from UCLA is that 95% of people who are addicted to some substance whether that be opioids or uh, alcohol uh, 95% of them avoid treatment they will do anything it takes to avoid treatment. A tre- of, treatment meaning detox. Going to going to detox, going to rehab, talking, even just talking to their doctor about it. They will not seek any kind of treatment for it. Of those, 75% claim that the reason that they do not seek treatment is shame-based. Wow, they don't yeah. want to be stereotyped. They don't want to be. Uh, they don't want to have to talk about it with their friends and family. Well, it's a tremendous stigma. It's a tremendous addiction. stigma, no and question. that's the main reason it seems that people do not seek treatment. And it was the same with me. I didn't want anybody to have to know about this. I felt it was my problem. I will deal with it. So, like a lot of people, I looked on the internet for answers. And what did you find? There were a. There was a lot of discussion about loperamide. And a lot of people were using it to uh, ameliorate the symptoms of withdrawal so that uh, the physical symptoms, the, the pain, the uh, electricity type feeling, the anxiety, the sweats, everything that happens, this medication would take it away. You had to take it in higher doses, which is what scared a lot of people. But of course, me being me (laughs) and being an addict, those sorts of things didn't frighten me. So I tried it. It worked. But 
unfortunately, like a lot of addicts, there is no time to go, there is no good time to go through withdrawal. You know, there, there is no ideal moment when you're like, okay, I'm just going to get really, really sick for a few weeks and then I'll be fine. And the same was with me. I didn't want to get sick, so I kept using it. Did but, it, let me just interrupt you for certainly. a second. Did it give you a high similar to the Vicodin? In the doses I was taking, no. But so as the you, dose went up, yes, oh. I would feel it. Um, not, I would not put it in the same category as any normal opiate, like a Vicodin or an oxycodone, something like that. It's not in the same quality. It's just, it's very mild. So was it more like the way, for example, heroin addicts use methadone it as a be. way to kind of just keep you it is commonly peaceful, so to speak? It is commonly referred to as the poor man's methadone. Uh, that is sort of a street name for it because it does help you get through those those excruciating withdrawals. And some people do stop using it and then they're okay, but the vast majority don't. The vast majority will either go back to their drug of choice or they'll continue using the loperamide. Unfortunately, that happened with me. The dose, it, loperamide, like any other opiate, as Gianna mentioned, is like, um, it has a tolerance. So when the tolerance increases, the dose has to increase, and that's what happened to me. I ended up at Upstate's emergency department in February of 2012 in cardiac arrest. Oh, boy. Okay. I was defibrillated 28 times wide awake <gasps> and lucid for the experience. Oh, it was, my It was God. very unusual. And, of course, the tox screens that they ran on me came back clean. I was not on any cocaine. I was not on heroin. This was the only drug I was on. And everyone was puzzled. And unfortunately, it was a very excruciating time. I had to be put uh, sedated and intubated for three days to get through the, the crisis part of it. Unfortunately, in terms of in ter the crisis part in terms of your heart? or in, ter in terms of my heart. I died several times that day. It, it was very, very bad. I don't want to run out of time. Help me. So what was the turning point? That and then what? Actually, I relapsed after that, and that was the turning point. Because I still thought, as many addicts do, that I had it under control. And I relapsed after that, ended up in Rome Hospital, and sat there in my hospital bed going, what am I doing? In fact, Gina sent me an email saying, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? So, you know, I can attribute a lot of my success afterwards getting clean and, you know, turning my life around to Gina's efforts to the Upstate Poison Control Center. Again, I don't want to run out of time. What would you like people to know who may be facing something like this? That there is help and there is hope. You need to set yourself up for success. Surround yourself with really good people that uh, they know addiction and they can help you. Um, I go to a 12-step program in addition to everything else that I do. And you need the support, you need the strength, you need the knowledge to be able to get you through it. And Gina, very quickly, what would you like people to know? Um, first thing, that Kate is incredibly brave for sharing her story. So um, we appreciate that. Um, but I think that for parents, for families, look for those clues of packets of over-the-counter products. See if your kids need help. 
Um, this drug is incredibly dangerous. This is something to be very concerned about, and we need to really think about protecting our families and, and our society. And I think society. that all drugs, including those sold without a prescription, can be dangerous when not used as directed. The and dose equals the poison, right? Very good. Thank yes. you so very much for coming in. Thank you, Kate, for coming in and sharing your Thank story. Thank you for I, having me. I agree. Very brave of you. My guest has been Gina Marafa, clinical toxicologist for the Upstate New York Poison Center, and Kate Rayland, who had been addicted to these substances. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Coming up next, with the new creepy clown scare so rampant, what are the origins of clown phobia, and how can we face our other fears? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. While they just keep coming and coming across multiple states, the reports of creepy clowns, clowns in vans, clowns in the woods, clowns lurking in the shadows, clowns chasing people, creepy clown sightings, and even some crimes reported. And even Ronald McDonald now is being affected. So if you're afraid of clowns, you're not alone. And there's a word for it, colrophobia. It turns out that people have been frightened by clowns for centuries. And here with more on all of this and how to approach phobias in general is Dr. Viral Garadia. He is a, a forensic psychiatry fellow at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Garadia. Glad to be here. So tell us what this phenomenon is. I mean, what is, what about, what's happening with these creepy clown sightings? So it seems since uh, the month of August... Uh, there have been uh, reported sightings in, in different pockets of the world. Uh, even Not in, just America, actually, in Europe as well. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so some countries in Europe, uh, it's definitely spreading in the United States as well. It started somewhere on the West Coast, and now it's all over the place. Uh, what the reports say is that they have uh, people dressed up in clown outfits who are... Uh, basically uh, trying to harass kids, trying to menace them. Uh, they have vans and they're trying to kidnap kids. One of them tried to attack a kid. Uh, so these are uh, clowns, people dressed up as clowns doing criminal behavior. But there are also people doing the same, dressing up as clowns who are maybe less, I mean, they're not necessarily doing criminal things, but they're almost trying to kind of capitalize on this generalized fear that's being promoted. Absolutely. So yeah. it's not that every single person is a criminal, but it's almost like it's becoming a contagion, and people are just thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. Kids will get, teenagers will get dressed up like clowns to, to basically frighten people. So why is it, first of all, is it common to be fearful of clowns? And if so, why? It's just as common as uh, being fearful of most other things. Uh, it all depends on your individual experiences growing up, I think, for the most part. Uh, as to why, so there have been some theories put forward as to why 
something that's usually supposed to be, you know, uh, a, ch- a child's playmate or, uh, you know, a child-friendly character who's Yeah, a jolly, yeah. you know, someone who's got balloons and, 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 you know, flowers and... So why would someone be scared of it? Uh, so one theory that uh, has uh, that has really caught on, it's called the Uncanny Valley Theory. Uncanny Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So it comes from the field of robotics. Uh, they discovered that when they started making humanoid robots, uh, they found that when, when there's a robot that almost looks like a human being, like it's 99% there, but there's that something missing, people are more fearful of something that almost resembles a human being as opposed to being scared of something that's totally metallic in a robot or something that's completely human. So that's very interesting. So it's almost like something that has is humanoid or human facsimile somehow engenders fear. Yes, that's what they have found. But do they but but the truth be told, clowns have had, you know, for for centuries had this kind of potentially dark side. And it's interesting to me that this has been perpetuated throughout, you know, the centuries as to, but what about, is it that there's something hidden? You know, it's, I mean, I understand the field of robotics is a new way to look at it or new research to underscore it, but what about a child, anyone seeing a clown that would necessarily make them not trust them? I mean, the only other thing I do know is historically there is, there is a, um, there have been circumstances of people perpetuating crime. This fellow, um, John Gacy, I guess, actually basically kidnapped a child and killed a child in clown outfits, saying that a clown can do anything kind of thing to, to children. So, there, I mean, there's been some reality to it. But is there more of a deeper psychological reason that you can think of from your experience? Well, I would think there's the, there's the aspect of being hidden and not... Uh, of people not being able to see who you truly are. Ah. Uh, that's the disguise. The disguise is usually loud, garish, uh, not not really sober. Uh, and and again, you know, the uncanny valley theory is it's recent mm-hmm. uh, from the field of robotics, but the basis of it is neurobiological, uh, which means that the fear has been carried through generations for sure. So that's why we can also explain people were afraid of deformed people in the medieval ages, and people who look different, who are human but not almost human. So I would think there's a there's this aura of mystery. You don't really know who the clown is, who's behind the makeup, or who the person is. So where there's mystery, it's almost like there's evil in, in some way. I mean, there's almost that connection. Where there's mystery, there's something unknown, it must be evil, it must be bad in some ways. That's possible. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with psychiatrist Dr. Viral Garadia. We're talking about fear of clowns and other phobias. So how does this evolve, though? I mean, what's the theory in terms of, specifically, let's start with clown phobias. How does that get started generally for children? Most phobias, you know, like like clown phobia, uh, uh, usually develop... uh, in, in childhood or early adolescence. Uh, now, there's two theories that have been put forward to uh, how these come through. Uh, the first is, it's called the classical conditioning theory, where you have something that's benign and harmless, but then you have some traumatic event or memory associated with it. But once the traumatic event is removed, 
the benign object now becomes a symbol for the trauma. So you fear the benign object instead of the trauma. So to give you an example, if, if a child goes to the circus and has a great time, you know, watches the clowns on the trapeze fooling around, but then the circus catches fire uh-huh. and the kid almost dies and it undergoes a traumatic event, the, the child is probably going to fear everything in the circus, even though they had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one theory. Uh, the second theory is, uh, and especially for younger kids, uh, they learn from seeing their parents. So when, when you're five years old, you don't know whether you should be scared of spiders or dogs. You, you've never encountered the world. So they look at you. So if you're scared of dogs, your kids are going to learn, oh, that's something to be feared. I need to learn how to be fearful of it and avoid it because it's going to hurt me. So that's one explanation for perhaps why even today when when parents rightly so might be afraid of seeing a clown in an, in an unlikely circumstance, let's say wandering on the street, they would exude some fear and therefore the children obviously similarly would pick up on that fear. Absolutely. So what's the natural history of, of fears like that though? What I mean is over time, do people grow out of them, or is it something that stays with you throughout your life? Specifically, let's talk about the clown phobia, and then I want to get into phobias in general. Sure. Uh, I would say it's quite likely you can grow out of it, uh, especially if you don't have repeated exposure to it. Uh, you know, when we are young, uh, our, our fear uh, response is, is it's, it's generated through a, a very unevolved brain, you know, Unevolved. What, it's like our mind is still developing. Yes. They, it's what they used to call the lizard brain part of our brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once we grow into teenagers and in our early 20s, we develop our, what they call the frontal lobes, which, which are responsible for intelligence and having uh, more control over your emotions. It overrules your, your fear centers in the brain. So that's a, that's a very simplistic way of explaining it's quite likely you can grow out of it if you don't have repeated exposures to the same phobia, to the same stimulus. So let's talk then about basically how, some, we, you know, let's take that and let's extrapolate that to phobias in general, because people have fear of water, they have fear of heights, they have fear of spiders, they have fear of many, many, many things, dark, fear of the dark, whatever. Um, Basically, how do you recommend or what do you recommend in terms of trying to either help children deal with those phobias, help them maybe avoid developing them, and, you know, maybe recommendations for the kinds of treatment that you would undertake in that circumstance? Oh, sure. Uh, Best way to, to treat a phobia is to never have it in the first place. So my response to that would be, you know, if you have a young kid, if you have a young relative, uh, you need to you need to model their behavior. So if they uh, are scared of something, it's okay. Firstly, you should acknowledge their fear and not uh, chastise uh, them for the fear. Right, right, and not invalidate them. Uh, but you you can model good behavior. You can model, you know, if someone's scared of the water, you know, the pa- for example, the parent can say, "Look, I'm in the pool. Nothing's happening to me. It's safe. You can come in," and you know, taking it seriously, but still normalizing it, it's, it's the best way to, uh, to, to normalize the whole event and, and not and have avoid it. the development of a real phobia around something like water, for example. Absolutely. 
So it's very much what you said again in terms of how things are learned. When things are learned vicariously by watching someone be afraid, a parent or a relative, obviously then the the obverse of that or the opposite of that is for you to instead model, I don't want to say bravery, but you know the fact that you're not afraid of something and encourage that child to see that. Absolutely. I think most parents do do that throughout life. But if a phobia gets started and it's pretty well ingrained, even in adults, uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I'd just like to have you give me a run-through of what are the kinds of treatment options or the kinds of ways you approach that. Sure. Uh, there have been uh, a few uh, psychotherapeutic methods that have been developed specially for you know, specific kind of phobias. I can, I can run down through them really quickly. Uh, you know, the first is called prolonged exposure, where the person is forced to be around whatever the person is scared of in, in a safe environment, which, so the idea is that uh, over time, they will grow out of their phobia by it's having... It's almost like new learning. They would be able to learn that it really isn't so frightening. Absolutely. Is that done incrementally, though? Is it done in small amounts, a little at a time kind of so, thing? So, yes, absolutely. So that is called systematic desensitization, mm -hmm. where you do it in small increments. Mm -hmm. So if someone's scared of heights... They go to the third floor first, then the fifth floor, then the seventh, and before going all the way to the rooftop. You don't take them straight to the rooftop. But it, it needs to be done in a supportive, uh, helpful, you know, friendly environment to take away the traumatic association with that, with that stimulus. And was there some, another one you wanted to explain, or is that basically the whole kind of Well, a, a new upcoming theory is called virtual reality exposure therapy, where people are taken into a, a computer-generated virtual reality of their specific phobia and then they spend enough time with it and you know use some cognitive behavioral methods uh, and it helps them treat their phobia it's still an up-and-coming method so the bottom line is it's treatable but it, as you said the best way to manage it in general especially when you have a developing child is to try to avoid the development of a particular phobia so Basically, in either case, you're really um, attempting to mitigate the effects because it can be pretty crippling, I would think. I mean, you must have seen that as well, just very briefly, when Absolutely. people have phobias that are untreated. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen people who have had to give up their jobs because they couldn't stop washing their hands or you know, their office was in a high rise and they couldn't take it or they were scared of crowds and they couldn't drive. So it, it's absolutely crippling. This is a very serious thing. Uh, you know, we, we think of clowns as something as really funny, but, you know, there's there's a lot of people who have a lot of serious impairment. Well, it sounds like there's some hope there, and I appreciate your coming in and talking about some of the therapeutic interventions that obviously can be successful. Thanks so much. My guest has been Dr. Viral Garadia. He's a forensic psychiatry fellow in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, a win-win study or how to eat, drink, and be merry. Well, folks, if you read the paper, 
watch the news or listen to us here on your Marconi, you already know research and gobs of it shows the Mediterranean diet, that is lots of fruits, veggies, whole grains, legumes and fish, and middling to small or no alcohol in meat, along with more monounsaturated than saturated fats, is good for the body. Less chance of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and type 2 diabetes, etc. Yawn, yawn. Tell me something new, Doc, right? <laughs> well, it gets interesting because even though we know eating that way would reduce our chance of premature death and disability, most of us don't. Why? Well, our brains focus more on the near-term future than the long-term. When we get to 64, 74, 84, if we do, we'll care. But right now, we'd rather have that big, juicy steak. Mmm, sounds good, doesn't it? Actually, not so much to me anymore, the more I learn, but... So how do we connect eating better with the near future? Well, every once in a while, a study comes along that makes me smile. And this one could make you smile more, too, and help us all eat better to boot. It was a biggie, some 12,000 subjects, and a longie. Followed those 12,000 chompers for four to six years, and it found, drum roll here, <laughs> eating more fruits and veggies led to more happiness. And the more, the merrier. Each serving up to eight a day bumped happiness higher and higher, up to as much as the difference between having a job versus not having a job. Wow. Why? Nobody really knows. Maybe B12 connected to serotonin, gut bacteria connected to brain behoozies. <laughs> you get the idea. Who knows? Bottom line, though, more fruits and veggies connected to near-term, happier, and healthier, which, when we get to 64, 74, 84, is linked to even happier, research shows. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich. Eat healthy. Be happy. O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, the best way to healthily navigate the world of fast food. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, whether we like it or not, fast food plays a role in our lives. No matter your age or your dietary preference, there are times when fries and a cheeseburger seem like your only or even your best option. Whether it's due to the low cost, your need for a splurge, or just general convenience. But that doesn't mean you should sabotage your diet. Here with more on how to navigate this world of fast food in the most healthful manner possible is Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian with Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Linda. I Thanks always for enjoy having me. talking to you. You always have so much wisdom, and this is something that I think so many listeners can relate to. I mean, fast food is everywhere. It is. Mm-hmm. And, and we're all tempted. We're all tempted, and I think there's uh, times in our lives that it's probably the only reliable source of a food choice. Uh, you know, whether you're on the thruway, you're traveling, but you know you can go to a fast food place. It tends to be a constant thing. You know, you can get a decent meal, you know, price-wise. Um, and they're usually always available wherever we go. So I think it is something that people need to learn, as you said, to navigate. And to do so intelligently or he- right. healthfully. Healthfully, So let's right. talk about how you navigate these menus. And I thought I'd start with just asking you, let's talk about portion because portion has had gotten a lot of um press of late i mean there was a whole movie about supersize me mm-hmm. that kind of thing and that's been something that has really caught i think the attention of the american population so let's talk about that i'm glad it's caught the attention because i think it's something that we always need to look at um you know we can look back 20 years and we can see what the size of things were 20 years ago compared to now and it has supersized so i think people need to be aware of that but I think sometimes we've gotten so used to it, we don't tend to think about it. Uh, Sodas is one of the things I always use as an example. You know, what was an average eight ounces is now an average is 24 ounces, or even if you're drinking a glass of juice. So I think you need to look at that. Um, And the way some of the companies are trying to market things is the larger, the bigger is cheaper. So I think consumers need to be aware of that. Like, oh, just because I'm getting this for only a dollar more, what am I getting? Am I getting all that soda? Am I getting all that fat? And you might want to also just pay attention to words like double or extra, you know, a double cheeseburger, extra cheesy, whatever. That's right. Because that's really, those are the clues. Those are the clues, definitely, in terms of it. Or just that they supersized it for you, and because it was a deal, look at that word. What are they supersizing I mean, you you might even order a kid-sized portion at times. That's right. I mean, which could be sufficient... For your Definitely appetite. for your appetite at that point. So how about sauces? Because to me, that's always a trick. I mean, over the years, I remember talking with you many, many times about the fact that you can think you're eating something really healthy. You're getting cut vegetables or you're getting a, a lovely salad, but then you dunk on or you throw on the All dressing. that, yes. What are you doing with that dressing? How much of that dressing? You know, what's the serving size of that dressing? Are you using the whole packet? Are you using a quarter of it? Dressings, there's, a, there's options for lower fat, but again, I think that's a choice we have to think about. Are you getting a low-fat dressing? Are you just getting the Italian, and you think it's low-calorie, and you don't even think about it, and you could be putting 200 calories on that? Um, you know, dips, uh, dipping something, your raw vegetables in a dip. Well, do you really need that? Could you dip it in a low-fat dressing? Could you find salsa at a restaurant? Those kinds of things. Yeah, Those so add up. Give me a couple of tips then about the kind of lower-fat things. Like I, I read somewhere, like for example, even an avocado, which has fat, it's supposedly the good fat. It's the good fat. But some of the other things that you could use, you mentioned salsa. What salsa, else? Salsa, you could use pepper. Um, you could use for just for spices to spice things well, up no, a little bit. Well, no, I mean, bit. if you wanted a dip. You mean like a dip? Oh, I would think like a low-calorie type. Um, if there's a lower-calorie vinaigrette, if there's a lower-calorie 
Italian if there's a lower calorie ranch. That's where you could be able to use that for that taste that you want, but you're not going to get that high calorie. Right. So how about fried things? Because it seems to me that that's always, you know, attractive, they taste delicious, Mm -hmm. but you're really getting a lot more calories than... Uh, it's equivalent if it were baked, for baked. example. Or grilled is probably the, the definition to look for, like a grilled chicken sandwich, a grilled type of meat, instead of the, the typical fried things. Um, it's like the difference if you go and pick baked chips versus potato chips. There's going to be a difference in terms of the fat content. The same thing happens when you're getting a fried item. You know that onion rings are fried, um, but if you get raw onions on your hamburger... That's a great, better choice than fried things. So look for the grill. Look for those kinds of things in terms of And don't be afraid to ask questions. I think that's important. I think as consumers, we need to find out, what are you giving me? What can I get? And what changes can I make? And, and someone pointed out to me that even terms like when they describe food, like you do want to avoid things that are breaded or things that are crunchy or creamy. Crispy. what's it crispy with it has to be crispy it has to have a breading and then that breading probably is more than likely fried instead of a grilled chicken sandwich those kinds of things and we know that that really can i mean over time is is going to raise your your cholesterol your ldl you know and eventually that that kind of fatty food definitely because we're looking at a health yeah major health problem we're looking at a fat content and then we're looking at okay where was that fat coming from is it from um, a high saturated fat um it's probably not coming from an olive oil or a canola oil it's probably coming from a, a higher source of saturated if you're just joining us you're listening to upstate's health link on air i'm linda cohen along with registered dietitian maureen franklin we're talking about how to make eating fast food a healthier experience now a few minutes before you mentioned soda Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your drinks, because besides them being supersized, is soda the best alternative? And if so, is there, a, is there within the category of soda something like, what is diet soda? Help, does diet soda help you? Well, diet soda would help you if you're looking at your caloric intake. You know, the differences between 300 calories versus 10 in terms of a diet soda. So again, personal preferences. Some people don't like diet soda. The best alternative is always water. There's always a low-fat milk option, which I think is great for people for their calcium intake in terms of it. Juices, again, you want to be careful with the size of the juice, and maybe you can order the kids' juice box size, so that's going to be a contained amount in terms of calories and portions. Um, Soda is just something, again, it tends to come with a lot of the meals that we tend not to think about it. So, again, ask, can I have water instead? Could I switch and get a small milk instead? Why not ask? Um, I think that's an important thing to see. We're paying for it. Get what you want. So actually what I'm hearing is that you want to kind of think about it before you actually go into a fast food restaurant. You want to, in a way, be prepared in some Always. way. <clears throat> and there are applications, websites, mobile apps that can, I mean, I think that some of these fast food places actually post nutrition information on oh, their websites tons. and their mobile apps. So you could scan the nutrition facts and try to make healthier decisions, but what should you be looking for? In other words, do you think people should mostly be looking at calories? Should they be looking at fat, trans fats, saturated fat? I mean, what what do you see as a registered dietitian are the most important things to be looking out for? Um, I think it's going to depend on each person's own, you know, medical situation and where they are in terms of their health status. But I think an easy thing is always to look for is calories. How can I get 
the most nutritional benefit with probably the least amount of calories. Um, so calories is one thing. Fats is always going to be an issue. So again, you, you're never going to get away from fats in fast food places. But if you can get, again, the lower amount, I think that would be important. Some For some individuals, probably looking at your sodium content, very important. That's a really difficult one because, again, the fat could be lower on some, but then the sodium might be high. But I think sodium is a big issue in terms of looking at. I always like people to look for um, how much are you getting as far as a protein. Are you getting some protein in that meat sandwich or that grilled chicken, and how much are you getting? And as you said, they do have the information out there. It's just us taking the time to say, what do I usually get at that fast food place, and how could I improve it? And, wow, this is what I'm getting, not realizing. Some people just order automatically and don't think about it. So it's that planning aspect. This is what I used to get. How could I change it for a healthier option? So I think the calories, try and keep them under 500. Sodium, as I say, is tough. And, you know, you can look at most of a, a quick, easy meal. is probably 1,000 milligrams of sodium. What do you, so what do you recommend? Well, if you meal? can keep it under 800, 900, would probably be great. But, again, that's a difficult one, and you'd have to do some investigation to look at it and say, what am I getting here? What's the daily acceptable amount, or what, what do you, what's a good target uh, for to, sodium they, intake? Basically, the re- recommendations are probably 2,500 to 3,000 in terms of in terms of total milligrams. Um, again, as a population, we tend to do more than that. So it's looking at what am I doing? Um, people don't taste that. It doesn't taste like, a, you know. It's a, hidden many it's times. It's hidden, and, and we it's get that, so used to it. Right, and you don't think it's salty. That's right. You don't think it's salty at all, and then, but yet you may end up finding yourself very thirsty. Thirsty and then, afterwards, <laughs> yeah. You're, mm-hmm. drinking, you're drinking that big, tall, supersized, you know, soft drink. Or you're having those fries that don't seem, you didn't put any extra salt on it, but you don't realize there's already sodium in that. And that hamburger on the bun doesn't taste salty, but there's already sodium in that. So some of these new, some of these places are now offering healthier options. Let's do a very quick overview of what you think of. In other words, do you do veggie burger? Do you skip the bun? Do you not have the cheese? What? Give us some ideas um, overall. Well, a quick easy one I like to think of is, again, it's a fast food. It's a basic one. A hamburger on a bun, all right? You can get side salads now. Look for a low-fat type of dressing. Uh, some of the companies are offering uh, for kids. They're offering apple slices or they're offering smaller yogurt choices, and uh, those are great choices in terms of it. Or you can go towards the grilled salad or the grilled sandwich in terms of it. But, again, be aware of what else you're ordering in it. Just if you think you're doing great because you got the grilled chicken, but then you get the 24-ounce soda, you want to look at that in terms of it. And and how do you approach that? Again, I think it's that planning aspect, going and knowing in, if I go to this place, this is my go-to food. How can I change that? Um, how, how can I make it better in terms of what I used to do? So in your experience as a registered dietitian, you counsel people and you've mm-hmm. seen this kind of thing. Do you think that people the people that you work with who actually frequent fast food restaurants, are they open to the idea of making these kinds of changes? What's your experience with Well, that? I think as we educate people more, they're becoming more open. And I think as the world is evolving in terms of the apps and the information that's available to us, I think if we keep pressing that, that's my issue of saying, okay, if you're going to do that, Look at what you're doing. Look up that app. Find out what it is. Look at the fat because it surprises people, and it's kind of a, you know, whoa, wake, whoa, up, call. wake up call. And then they say, oh, whoa, I didn't realize it. You know, if their issue was sodium, they can just look at one thing and say, I'm concerned about the sodium. Wow, I didn't know I was getting that. So I think it's difficult as people because, again, we get into our routines. We don't think. So it's taking the time to think, plan, 
and make some good realistic changes. And how about on the side of the actual companies? Do you think that, I mean, what's your perspective now? You've watched this over time as a registered dietitian, and you do see that they're offering some of these new things, but, you know, sometimes they're also hidden things even in these so-called healthier things. That's you know, right. They give you a cup of coffee and they put in they say, would you like cream and sugar? And if you let them put in the cream and sugar, it could be... It could be enormous. It right. could be like a right. touch of coffee right. with all that cream and sugar. Right. So, so I think I think they're trying. I think they're going towards consumer demands in terms of, you know, um, antibiotic-free chicken and, you know, getting rid of additives and preservatives. But again, a buyer beware. What is the alternative of what they're putting in? Are they putting tons of sugar in and you're still getting a carbohydrate source? Are they adding salt because they took the fat out? What are they, what are they trading for that? So I think as consumers, that's what we need to look at. Why are we going towards that product? Is it because we think, oh, great, it's a, um, additive-free, but what am I actually getting out of that product? Yeah. And I think it's, 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 it's up to the consumers. The companies are out there, they're giving us the information, but we have to use it. And I think that's an important thing. Use it because there's great information out there. Yeah, great information, but this, I think underscoring that or underlying it has to do with the motivation. I mean, the you bottom line is this fatty stuff tastes Terrific. terrific. This fatty, salty food <laughs> is cheap and tastes terrific. Right. So it's really, in a way, it's a little bit of an uphill battle. It is. And, and then you have to look at how often you go to a fast food place. Maybe you don't go to it all that often. And if that's it, then you've made that conscious choice to say, I'm going to have this food. I know it's probably not the healthiest, but I don't do this. But if you do go to fast food places all the time, I think that's even more important to look at what am I doing on a regular basis and how can I make one or two small changes for my health. I think that's great advice. You always have great advice. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. My guest has been Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian at Upstate Medical University, and we've been talking about navigating the very attractive but potentially dangerous world of fast food. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Cancer is a 24-7 forever companion, and not in the sweetest sense of that word. To be sure, it can bring out the good, the noble, the profound, and it can also make us wild with fury and fear. Rita Cerisi is a novelist and short story writer who directs the creative writing program at the University of South Florida. She gave us two short essays that reveal the underbelly of cancer's effect on us. Here is Swindled, followed by Cancer Does Not Bring Out the Best in Us. Swindled. In the family room, there's a Keurig coffee maker and a vending machine that dispenses plastic pods of house blend, French vanilla, green tea, and dark chocolate. Dollar bills only, it reads. Over the long course of your illness, I feed dollar after dollar into this machine and hunker down on the sagging sofa, nursing my half-hot drink and watching Beat the Clock, and you bet your life, and the price is right, and let's make a deal. One day, I open my wallet and find only a five, so I take a chance and feed it into the dollar bill only slot. When the machine swallows my five but does not deliver my French vanilla, I burst into shameful tears. 
You're dying, but all I can think is, I want my money back. Cancer does not bring out the best in us. The doctor looks back and forth between my sister and me. Which of you is his mother? I thank God my sister is the one who has to say, I am. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we explore what parents need to know about health concerns in daycare, preschool, and school settings, plus some views on the changing world in medicine today, and a foolproof way to calculate your food portion sizes. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.